Full disclosure, I'm Robin Fazad. Stay tuned for Hunting Whitey, the inside story of the capture and killing of James Whitey Bulger, America's most wanted crime boss. You don't want to miss this one, so do stay with us. Full Disclosure airs on NPR member station VPM News. You can enjoy it on Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. We are on Spotify. We are, of course, on NPR One. Joining us from New England, what a pleasure, is Casey Sherman, co-author of Hunting Whitey, which is about to hit the inside story of the capture and killing of America's most wanted crime boss. Uh, Casey is a fellow true criminal mind wonk like I am. I I followed his byline He's a New York Times bestselling author of The Finest Hours, which is a major motion picture. Uh, he has covered Tom Brady's fight for redemption. You've seen his bylines in Time Magazine, The Washington Post, Esquire, HuffPo, Boston Magazine. How are you, sir? I'm good, Robin. Thanks for having me on. Are you joining us from Southie? Uh, no, no. But I did live in Southie for quite some time at the height of uh, Whitey Bulger's reign of terror. I'm in a nice leafy suburb, uh, you know, as I'm in my early 50s now. So uh, the less uh, stress I can put on my personal life, the better. I got to tell you, I was in graduate school in Boston between 2003 and 2005. And I'm just thinking back to the year milestones in this book and kind of who was top of mind of as, as, as kind of the fugitive to catch. Whitey Bulger never came up in Boston, albeit I lived, you know, near Alston and, and Brookline and everything else. Uh, he was just not anywhere near some of these Al-Qaeda people we were pursuing or other U.S. most wanted people. And I think back to the early 90s when he was on the lam officially and, and the feds decided to go after him in full throttle. Everybody was thinking about the Unabomber back then and, and other various characters. How was this guy, you know, step back, how was this guy allowed to fly under the radar for so long? Right. Well, you know, he fell through the cracks, so to speak, because it was, you know, he was in the middle of that, you know, the Unabomber hysteria and obviously what happened uh, 9-11 and post 9-11. But, uh, you know, Bulger was a very savvy criminal. And, you know, he spent 16 years on the run uh, from the FBI. And that's because he had spent more than two decades planning his escape. So he was ready when the um, indictments were about to come down down uh, to put him behind bars in Boston. As I said, he'd been planning it for years, and he vanished uh, in thin air uh, with his girlfriend at the time, Catherine Gregg, and they spent the next 16 years crisscrossing the United States before ultimately uh, landing in Southern California. You are right in noting that he is one of the most notorious crime bosses in American history, right up there with uh, Al Capone and Vito Genovese and longtime you know, he is an FBI informant, and that bought him some degree of inoculation. He was the leader of Boston's Winter Hill Gang and number one on the FBI's most wanted list uh, by the 90s. He was indicted for 19 counts of murder, racketeering, narcotics distribution, and extortion. And he was on the lam for 16 years. So walk me back through this, because in my foray into crime, you know, true crime with the cocaine cowboys of, of South mm-hmm. Florida and my book and everything, right. I became very familiar with strategic informing, Right. You do it to buy you time, to buy you cred, political capital with the authorities. And that was his relationship with the FBI in Boston. Right. Yeah. This guy was going to let him continue hustling. But I never imagined that you would take it to the nth degree and say, oh, this is a license for us to kill and maim and terrorize. Well, that's what the uh, uh, corrupt FBI agents that Bulger uh, worked with certainly gave him carte blanche to do. He did have a license to kill because, you know, he was co-opted by the FBI. He co-opted the FBI. The top echelon informant program in the FBI was uh, instituted in the 1960s. And the um, the first person that they, uh, the FBI really turned was a uh, compatriot of Whitey Bulger's named Joe the Animal Barboza, who was a oh, hitman yeah. in, in Boston. I had written a book about him that's about to become a movie for 20th Century Fox. There's that famous, there's that famous scene of him smoking in a, in a kind of a testimony with sunglasses on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's right, with his pork chop hat, pork pie yeah. hat, rather. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, the FBI really, you know, they wanted to use these guys 
to bring down La Cosa Nostra. They didn't really care about the small fish operating, uh, you know, in Irish gangs, in Portuguese gangs. They wanted to tear down the mafia, and they had to embed themselves uh, with the criminals to do it. Now, Whitey Bulger recognized that, and again, he's probably uh, one of the smartest uh, mob bosses that, um, you know, ever operated on any street in any city uh, across the world because Bulger was very smart. He understood that he had to give information in order to receive information from the FBI, and he was keeping one step ahead of his enemies uh, by, you know, getting information about people that were about to rat on him so he could take them out uh, before he ended up in jail. Now, um, you know, the lore and mythology about Whitey Bulger is really interesting because a lot of it he created by, uh, himself, Robin. I mean, he was very um, astute in terms of building up this legendary character of himself, much like Al Capone did, um, you know, in the 1920s in, in Chicago. You know, he mm. um, built a, a, a strong stronghold in his neighborhood of South Boston, always walking old ladies across the street, always uh, buying... Thanksgiving dinners for needy families. But meanwhile, he's pumping in, you know, millions of dollars in uh, cocaine and heroin into the neighborhood. He is killing people left and right in the most brutal ways, including two women. So we're talking about a real bad guy here. But again, a smart guy. And he vanished uh, in thin air. Um, in the early 1990s, and it took 16 years for the FBI to catch up with him. I want to get to some of the, the you know, sociopathic, psychopathic tendencies, which are really fascinating in this case. You talk about his love for animals, uh, how he has uh, absolute disdain for black people. He was openly racist about it, but admiration for Native Americans. He had spent time in federal prison with one. There are so many fascinating layers to kind of unpeel with this, with this mind. Um, across kind of the 20th century, there are pictures of him that look like they're 1930s, 1940s gangster vintage, and then you see him captured in these orthopedic sneakers, and so it spans <laughs> right. all of these decades. What's amazing to me, but step back for a minute, and this is, um, you know, we talked about being an informant strategically. Now, I would think stepping back that Boston would be a big cheese, a big hub for the mafia, and it's strange in that he found himself being kind of a miscellaneous or bit player for much of the 1970s. The real center of gravity was in Rhode Island. Is that right? With the Italian mob? Yeah, that's right. And it's it's really interesting because, you know, uh, Providence was always the um, capital of mob uh, involvement uh, and power in New England. It really wasn't Boston. Boston was a satellite uh, city because it couldn't get its uh, act straight. You had these bit uh, gangsters, all Italian mafiosi in the, you know, 30s, 40s, and 50s that uh, uh, didn't have the gravity of a Raymond Patriarca, who was, uh, you know, the boss of bosses for the New England mob and so, somebody that was, uh, you know, feared and respected by uh, all the bosses across the United States. So, the, you know, Boston answered to Providence. Springfield, Massachusetts, which is on the other uh, end of Massachusetts, mm. answered to New York City and the Gambino family down there and the Genovese family down there. So, you know, the Boston uh, mob lore and history is a bit complicated. And that's why, you know, Whitey Bulger, who you are right, he was kind of a bit player uh, in the 70s because he spent most of his 1960s time in federal prison. So when he is uh, released from federal prison, this is right after one of the bloodiest mob wars in American history, and it happened in Boston. Mm -hmm. 57 men were killed in a three-and-a-half-year period, and, um, you know, that never happened in Capone, Chicago, never happened in um, Philadelphia with Nicky Scarfo or New York. It happened in Boston. But how Bulger benefited from it is because all the bad guys that were equally as dangerous as Bulger, well, they were either uh, in jail or six feet underground. So Bulger was really able to fill uh, the void in organized crime left by some very tough and deadly individuals. So the the, er, the the ooze that this kind of emerges from is the scene, the fiercely kind of you know lower class uh, blue collar scene in South South Boston, where he was raised. I think his father was a longshoreman. You'd mentioned in the book he'd lost his arm in an accident when he was young. The family was poor. Uh, he lived in a housing project in a decidedly what Irish American neighborhood. He did not like being called Whitey because he had this shock of blonde hair, but the name still stuck. And his brother goes on to become a leading 
political power in Massachusetts, one of the most powerful people in Boston, the halls of the state capitol and academia. Yep. And that's kind of what what, what differentiates the Bulger story from most is because, uh, you know, as Bulger was building up his, uh, you know, criminal bona fides, if you will, uh, his brother Billy was, um, you know, uh, building up a, a very powerful political career in Massachusetts. And at one time, he was the most powerful lawmaker in Massachusetts as the Senate president um, uh, on Beacon Hill, which is the state house in Boston. He was actually, uh, Billy Bulger was more powerful than any of the governors that uh, he had worked alongside with. So, mm. you know, as Bulger's uh, reputation grew, so did Billy's. And you had two, uh, uh, you know, two brothers that were so close together uh, and loved each other um, uh, and, you know, really kind of allowed each other to, uh, to dominate their respective fields, organized crime and city politics. So the interesting thing is I see that he was first arrested, was it when he was 14? That's right. There was larceny, uh, and then and then he joined a street gang, the Shamrocks, and then there was assault, forgery, armed robbery, juvenile reformation. Uh, you fast forward to the 1950s. He's in the federal pen in, in Atlanta, uh, charged with robbery and, and truck hijacking. And what happened in the 1950s, I see this mugshot of him in 1959, and, and the, the, the shine, kind of the spirit. The, the the soul is is really out of his eyes. Mm-hmm. The the um, you know he and eighteen other inmates had volunteered to take LSD in this experiment where they would get reduced sentences. And That's it's right. Something that would torment him for the rest of his life. He said that he complained that he he was recruited by deception. They were helping to find a cure for schizophrenia, and it it was a nightmare that he started hearing voices and he formally now had an axe to grind with the with with humanity, with civilization. Yeah, so you took a person that was, that was you know, had a, a criminal mind, may not have been ultra-violent at the time, but then he uh, participates in a government program, and again, they were told that they were looking for a, um, a cure for schizophrenia. Really, it was a CIA operation, and uh, all about uh, kind of mind-control experiments that uh, they were experimenting on these federal prisoners. And Bulger participated in more than a 1,000 LSD trips, if you will, which altered his the chemistry in his brain for sure. So now you've got a criminal that becomes kind of the incredible hulk of criminals and hom- homicidal maniacs. And, you know, Bulger, uh, you know, lived with the nightmares uh, from his LSD experience throughout his entire life. And that doesn't, uh, you know, I don't want to shy away from his uh, criminal past and use this as an excuse, but it was certainly a contributing factor uh, to the Bulger uh, who ran, you know, South Boston and much of Boston in the 1980s and, uh, you know, killed on a whim. You know, he did do a tour in Alcatraz. Uh, I see the mugshot there. He was 30 years old. And uh, he got parole in 1965 after, I, I believe he was, you know, served nine years in prison. And this is the amazing thing to me. With everything that happened between 1965 and, say, when he was on the lam in the early 90s, this guy would not be arrested again for nearly 50 years. Right. And you go back to Alcatraz and, you know, Alcatraz is, uh, was Whitey Bulger's Harvard University. He was very proud of his alma mater and he used to walk around with an Alcatraz belt buckle uh, with his inmate number on it. So this wasn't a guy that shied away from his past. He was very proud to be, you know, part of that old gangster mythology and old gangster lore. And the fact that Bulger wasn't, you know, wasn't arrested again for decades is because of the relationship that he had with the FBI that was uh, brokered by his brother, Billy, who uh, uh, aligned Whitey Bulger with John Connolly, a corrupt FBI agent that grew up in the same neighborhood as Billy and uh, Whitey. And for the next, uh, you know, several decades, they were committing crimes that ultimately grew to murder. And the FBI was complicit in these, uh, you know, in these slings. Casey, when did Whitey Bulger break bad? Again, he gets out of prison in 1965. And we do know about the the Irish, uh, the gang wars in, in uh, I guess, Southie and across other parts of Boston, the Winter Hill Gang and everything that happened in the 1960s and 1970s. When did this escalate from truck hijacking and uh, loan sharking and bookmaking and, uh, you know, protection rackets to, to outright murder? Well, you know, when, when the when the you know the big money increased, I guess you could say. And again, Bulger was trying to eradicate any uh, 
perceived enemies because he was trying to uh, establish his own seat of power. And La Cosa Nostra, the mafia in Boston, they didn't care uh, what Bulger was doing as long as Bulger was cannibalizing other Irish gangs. And the mafia at the time, they didn't want to get their hands dirty anymore. You know, they were growing into more of kind of a legitimate organized crime outfit, at least in Boston. So the Irish gangs were still, you know, brutal enough to um, uh, undertake these uh, deadly operations by killing people that either the mafia wanted rubbed out or Bulger wanted rubbed out for, you know, a couple of reasons. You know, one was that they may have uh, learned about Bulger's relationship with the FBI, and Bulger had to uh, protect that at all costs. As I said, the other reason was Bulger was consolidating power and trying to build up his own, um, his own small army in a very small, tight-knit neighborhood of South Boston. So explain to me, if, is this kind of a subcontracting relationship with the, with the big cheese, the Italian crime families that just happen to be based in, in Providence? Again, it's so strange to me because you read so much about New York being split up in a certain way between Brooklyn, you know, New Jersey, the stuff right. across the Hudson River, Philadelphia, if you see the Irishman, Detroit, Kansas City, if you see Casino. I, I still cannot believe that the Italian mafia in Providence would be content to leave some of these pickings to uh, Irishmen from South Boston. Well, they do the jobs that the Italian uh, mobsters didn't want to do anymore. You know, they were they were more brutal. And I think you see that in almost every wave of immigrant, you know, street gang. Um, you know, the first, uh, it's funny, I mean, it really comes full circle. The first uh, noted gangsters in American history were the Irish gangsters and the Jewish gangsters. And, sure. you, know, vet, you know, ultimately, the Irish went into politics and civil service. Uh, the Jewish gangsters went into, um, you know, law and uh, medical uh, medical professions, and that gave uh, that gave way for the Italians to fill that void. And later, then you've got you know obviously the the Mexican gangs and the Guatemalan gangs. But you know there were pockets of Irish gangs that never elevated themselves, and that was surely the case in South Boston, which you know every family had. You know, if, if, if there was a family of three brothers, one was a cop, the other was a priest, the other was a criminal. You know, he had a spat. And I think the first person on the record that he killed, if I'm not incorrect, was um, <laughs> accidentally the wrong guy. Donnie uh, McGonagall was a, a, a law-fearing, law-abiding, innocent person who just happened to be the brother of a guy that, that Whitey Bulger didn't like from a bar, from the mob scene. Uh, I, I did see that Bulger executed his brother Donald in a case of mistaken identity. He kept stirring up everything with his mouth, so Jimmy decided to kill him. Jimmy shot him right between the eyes, only it wasn't Polly, it was Donald. Mm -hmm. And Billy, apparently, like it was said, that don't worry about it, this guy wasn't healthy in any way. He smoked, he would have gotten lung cancer. Is that, I, I guess, was that his first kill? That was his first kill that, that we know of. That's kind of on the record. And again, you know, when you're talking about Irish gangs in Boston in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you're also talking about a lot of collateral damage. There were a lot of different guys that uh, uh, dropped dead because they were either in the wrong place at the wrong time or they were mistaken for somebody else. Now, the McGonagall brothers are interesting because um, one of the McGonagall brothers uh, was uh, married to one Whitey Bulger's future girlfriend, Catherine Gregg. So Catherine Gregg, you know, understood how bad Whitey Bulger was, yet still uh, wanted to be by his side and wanted to take a 16-year uh, odyssey with this uh, with this person that she knew had committed murder, committed murder to people that were close to her. I'm going to get to that because it's so haunting and I have so many questions about her. Full disclosure, this is Robin Farzad. You are listening to Casey Sherman, co-author of a book that I really enjoyed. I read it twice, Hunting Whitey, the inside story, the capture and killing of America's most wanted crime boss. Has it already been adapted for a movie? No, we're working on that right now. I mean, we've been very lucky in our career that, uh, you know, any anytime we get into a project like this, Hollywood uh, comes calling. And that's Patriot's Day, The Finest Hours, now Animal with 20th Century Fox, 
So we're working uh, on a limited series because it's it's too much information and too many great uh, scenes to be you know tied up in a in a ninety minute bow. So we we really need to uh, take a look at you know Whitey Bulger's life as a criminal, but also the FBI uh, fugitive hunters that have their own great stories to tell and their stories about perseverance, how they you know worked through um, a lot of down years where uh, you know the confidence was shaken, their uh, reputations were besmirched, and uh, you know finally it took a female FBI agent to come in and look at the landscape and say, okay, we're going to go hunt down Bigfoot. And that's kind of how they referred to Whitey Bulger. He was a he was a myth. He was an apparition. He was Kaiser Soze from the usual suspects. Oh, yeah. You know, he was, he, was the, he was the ghost. And uh, and she put together a fugitive team and a strategy, which was brilliant, that ultimately led to the capture of, at that point, America's number one uh, fugitive, Whitey Bulger. So Help me understand. We did, you did you did kind of delineate for us that uh, Boston and Southie were largely left to the Italian Americans and the Italian gangsters by the Italians. I'm sorry, by the Irish Americans by the Italians in Providence. But Whitey Bulger's sidekick, his enforcer, is Steve the Rifleman Flemmy, who was, I believe, nominally Italian American. Or yeah, Stevie was uh, half was, Irish. He was he was half Irish, half Italian. Um, the La Cosa Nostra tried to recruit him and tried to induct him into um, uh, the mafia, but he refused to do it because he knew he'd have his hands tied if he was, you know, in the so-called outfit and he could never get out and he could never op- operate independently. And he was making, you know, more money working side by side with Whitey Bulger uh, than he would be as a, as a soldier under the auspices of the Providence Mafia or the Satellite Mafia in the north end of Boston. You know, Stevie was uh, an independent contractor, as was Whitey Bulger. There's a whole other level of sociopathy and psychopathy. When I look at uh, Steve Fleming, and I'm really haunted by this, and especially the treatment that they gave him in the, in the movie Black Mass, almost like a sympathetic figure, but this is a man who, um, you know, there are some pictures of him in the 1970s. He's kind of a striking guy. He's, he, he cuts a swath, you know, dark and handsome. It has him photoed with his uh, beautiful girlfriend at the time, Deborah Davis. Yep. And it turns out that his, um, it's, it's even hard to bring up, uh, his common-law stepdaughter, Deborah Hussey, he had molested her and helped dismember both of them. That's right. And actually talking about these in court, my heart just bleeds for the families out there that are finally getting some modicum of of reconciliation and and, and airing of this. How how are people like this like I can almost understand if if Whitey Bulger, they did experiments on him and they fed him LSD in the 1950s and he was absolutely criminally insane and psychopathic and potentially schizophrenic. But how could a guy who's so functioning and gets up on the stand like Steve Flemmy and his enforcer says, my relationship with Whitey, with James, was was strictly business. But if he tells you, turn around and kill your stepdaughter, dismember them, and, and actually you know bury them in this house that they called the Haunty, I, I, I really can't get my head around that. Well, Robin, you mentioned, uh, you know, Stevie Fleming's portrayal in Black Mass, and he was kind of a sympathetic and sloth-like figure, which was absolutely the antithesis of who Stevie Flemmy is. Stevie Flemmy is a very dangerous individual, an individual that even Whitey Bulger had admitted that he was uh, a little scared of because you just did not know what Stevie Flemmy was going to do. Stevie Flemmy grew up, he went into the Marines, he, they called him the Rifleman because he was uh, pretty adept at uh, weaponry in the uh, U.S. military, but he also had a brother, uh, Jimmy the Bear Flemmy, who was uh, who he aspired to be uh, the number one hitman in Boston. So you've got two psychotic brothers that have no uh, qualms about killing, no qualms about raping. You mentioned uh, um, uh, Deborah Hussey, who was, again, Stevie Flemmy's common-law stepdaughter. And remember, uh, if you read the book, um, uh, Stevie Flemmy took her uh, shopping right before he knew that he was going to kill her. Um, so, I mean, that takes a, another level of psychopath to really try to try to understand somebody like that. I've tried to understand Stevie Flemmy, and, uh, and, and, and I can't come up with those, those appropriate answers. And I'm almost glad I can't because that is a very uh, um, um, troubled mind and somebody that would kill you in a, in a blink of an eye. 
Did you reach out to him? I mean, he got the he he, he was late to kind of get the tip off in the mid nineties when the feds got serious about this pursuit and they brought him in and they've since been milking him on the witness stand. I think he has life in prison. He's not going to get out, but he could testify to maybe improve his conditions in prison. Yeah, he can testify, but, you know, he cannot uh, cooperate with uh, interview requests or anything uh, like that. And, you know, Stevie, even though he got late word that the uh, indictments were coming down, Bulger had been telling him for years, you need your getaway plan. And Stevie just kind of shook his shoulders and uh, shook his head and said, oh, no, I'm going to be fine. We've got um, informants in the FBI. We've got, uh, uh, you know, corrupt state uh, police uh, officials that they work with. So he thought that he was well insulated and well protected, but that clearly didn't happen. You know, Bulger is the only one who could see the forest for the trees and understood that he had to uh, build this plan of escape over several years and uh, eventually launch it, which he did. So, Casey, work the parallel track with me here is while they're getting into all this murder and mayhem and shooting people and dismembering people and blowing up things and you know, the rifleman follows in the car with the gun and, and all of this stuff that happens across Boston and the Burbs uh, in the early to mid-70s. They also uh, have this agreement that struck with their FBI handler, John Connolly, who's now in prison. And I guess he made the approach. Will you explain this to me through knowing the Bulgers, having grown up in Southie himself? He felt like, you know, we are cut from the same cloth, that I'm going to make you an extraordinary offer that if you give me some information, I will also feed you information. I will give you some degree of, you know, salutary neglect. I'll look the other way while you do your 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 hustling. I mean, never I, I never got any indication that he said you have a license to murder people, even though he tipped them off to who the informants were. So it's kind of yeah, you kind of can murder them. But walk me back through that, you know, overture, how that sure. happened, when that first happened, when this guy became an informant for a living. Well, uh, you know, John Connolly was was very close to uh, Billy Bulger, the uh, the politician uh, brother of Whitey Bulger. And it was Billy Bulger that really uh, uh, got John Connolly his uh, job with the FBI. And there was a bit of a quid pro quo there because, you know, uh, Billy Bulger told John Connolly, look, you know, uh, take, you know, keep a lookout uh, uh, on my brother and keep him out of trouble. Now, you know, Billy Bulger didn't say, uh, you know, let my brother, um, you know, commit crimes. But, um, you know, there, there was something unsaid there that, you know, spoke volumes. And John Connolly, uh, you know, built this relationship with Whitey Bulger and was really in awe of Whitey Bulger. I mean, he, you know, Bulger was John Connolly's hero and John Connolly protected Whitey Bulger, you know, for years and years and years and then brought in more FBI agents that were ultimately, um, you know, co-opted and co uh, coerced by Bulger. So John Connolly also, uh, again, to your point, he was the guy that, and it was such a sick thing, Robin, because somebody that felt the heat of Whitey Bulger the first thing that they would do is either go to the state police or the FBI, and they would look for protection. But they were looking in the direction of somebody that was going to reach out to Bulger and say, okay, this guy is going to be a problem. It's probably good to take him out or take care of him. So, you know, John Connolly was actually setting up, um, you know, men for, for murder. And that's why he's in prison uh, for the rest of his life in Florida right now. So I can understand, having covered the cocaine wars in, in Miami in the late 70s and the early 80s, how suddenly homicide and Miami becoming the murder capital of, of, I guess, the Western Hemisphere becomes front and center. So if you're a detective, you can kind of justify in your head, I will look the other way if some pot dealers or if some smaller time people who are not cold-blooded killers feed me quality information so I can nab. There's no possible way that we can get everybody in jail right now. And I can almost see if Connolly made that agreement in his own head that, listen, these guys are are hustlers, they're larceny people, they're robbers, they're, they're bookmaking people. There's going to be a symbiotic relationship, and I trust that people aren't going to get killed on account of this relationship. When was that deal struck? Uh, well, uh, again, depending on who you talk to, that deal was struck in the early uh, 1970s when John Connolly, um, you know, made his way back to Boston as an FBI agent and uh, opened his first file, um, informant file, top echelon informant file with uh, Whitey Bulger. What does it mean to be a top echelon informant exactly? 
Uh, that means that the information and intel that you are providing is um, a cut above all the rest and that there are certain um, freedoms that a top echelon informant will receive because he's either sitting at, you know, next to the throne of the, you know, the biggest organized crime um, syndicate in, in a city or, uh, you know, they're, they're very close to it. And that's what, you know, Woody Bulger at least was perceived to be in the 1970s. And Bulger, um, you know, was giving information uh, uh, to the FBI about the uh, organized crime unit in the North End, which was the kind of the, the junior league mafia group from uh, as opposed to Providence, Rhode Island. And Bulger's information actually allowed uh, the FBI to plant uh, bugs in the headquarters of the underboss of the New England mob, uh, Gennaro and Julo, which ultimately led to Gennaro and Julo's arrest, an arrest that was made by John Connolly, the biggest uh, caller in his entire career. So, you know, Bulger was very handy and uh, uh, um, very important for somebody like John Connolly for his own career. And Bulger, use them just as the FBI used him. And the Italian mafia in Providence and some of the affiliated syndicates up and down the, the eastern seaboard, they're none the wiser about this? Uh, no. I mean, that's the shocking thing. You know, nobody... Under, I mean, they had to be really stupid, quite frankly, Robin, to not see, you know, all of this kind of happening and unfolding. There were too many coincidences and too many circumstances where Bulger would slip out of a noose and other people would either get arrested or killed. And it was happening time and time again. And even the people closest to Bulger, including John Moderano, his number one hitman, yeah. was shocked that Bulger was an FBI informant. So here's a guy, Whitey Bulger, who could compartmentalize his entire life because he had to to stay alive. Explain something to me. Steve the Rifleman Flemmy, his sociopathic, you know, psychopathic partner in crime, among, you know, three or four other guys, was he also informing on his own on a freelance basis? Or this is what I didn't understand in the book. Was Bulger, did he understand that you inform through this conduit, through me and my relationship with Connolly? Or was he trying to protect himself also? He was trying by, to protect you know, himself in case also, to... Robin. And, you know, Stevie Flemmy had been a longtime informant as well, kind of operating, uh, you know, his own um, intelligence network. So here are two guys that were, you know, ratting on each other, ratting on others. They were only um, interested in their own survival. Whitey Bulger was off, obviously a lot smarter than uh, Stevie Flemmy, which is why he was allowed to breathe free air for another 16 years before he was captured in 2011. What was the tipping point in the early 90s? Again, I'm trying to take my, my mind back to what the world was focused on. It was the O.J. Simpson trial. It was the Unabomber. We did have the World Trade Center bombing in 1993 and maybe the, the manhunt for some people like that. But I, I can't remember when I first learned the name Whitey Bulger. Was it maybe in 1999, finally, when well, he was on know, the witness I, I protection think, I mean, plan? Bulger was uh, profiled, uh, you know, on 60 Minutes uh, back in the, I would say, the uh, you know, early 1990s. And this is while Bulger was still, uh, you know, at the height of his infamy living and operating in South Boston. And I think people were fascinated by the idea of, uh, of the politician brother and and the gentleman criminal. And that's how, you know, Bulger perceived himself. And that's how others in the media perceived him at the time. He had some great relationships with reporters at the Boston Globe, including Mike Barnacle, who's now a, uh, a talking head for C uh, MSNBC, and others as well that could do his bidding. And again, you know, Bulger wanted people to think that, you know, he was only controlling the rackets, keeping drugs out of South Boston, when it was the absolute opposite. He was, um, you know, cornering the drug market market in Boston and offing his en enemies and, and most grievously uh, murdering young women. That's what he was doing. So talk to me when that corrupt office, that, that kind of there was a, a sense of uh, not just corruption, but it was kind of defeated. It was, you know what? Oh, we're going to flog this thing again. You're going to go after James Whitey Bulger. Give that up. That's not happening. People were cynical and, and, and people who came in were very hard pressed to find 
momentum or people who they can trust to go after this this kind of this faded whale. He wasn't still killing people by the early 1990s. After all, some of these crimes have receded into distant memory from the early to mid 80s. And right. He was, you know, growing old at the time. And, you know, hunting Whitey is, uh, you know, we look at Bulger's life and his, uh, you know, lying in winter phase at his life yeah. where he's 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 not necessarily the physical threat that he once was, but he's still very crafty and very elusive. And, you know, Bulger's mythology grew when he escaped and when he vanished and was placed on, uh, uh, you know, the top 10 America's most wanted list. That's when people really started to look at Bulger as this larger than life character. But I, you know, I covered the case as a journalist in Boston at the time, as did my co-author Dave Wedge. And we didn't believe that the FBI was serious about catching Whitey Bulger because our uh, thought process was they want to keep Bulger out in the cold because of all the... It's so embarrassing. It, it's so That's embarrassing. That's the thing. If right. it comes back and it, yeah. it kind of blows back on you, because I, I still get the impression after seeing all your movies, after reading many books about him, after seeing the profiles, the 60 Minutes interviews of when he was nabbed, the true crime, you know, testimonials about the whole hunt for Whitey, that they could have nabbed this guy if they were serious about it at any point, if they did some sort of dragnet across Boston and New England, I don't know, go up to Ogunquit or something, you would find him. He wasn't going to go far. Either he was right, you know, staying in the neighborhood or he was overseas. You know, that's basically the mindset that the FBI had early on. Now, there are some real heroic uh, FBI agents like Charlie Gianturco, who got, um, you know, a bead on Whitey Bulger through a vehicle that uh, he was able to to uh, um, secure uh, at one of Bulger's hideouts in Selden, New York. And, uh, you know, Charlie Gianturco uh, cooperated fully with this book. You know, the thing, Robin, that we have uh, going for us in Hunting Whitey, for the first time, the FBI really opens its entire case file, uh, at least in the pursuit of Bulger, and shows uh, myself and my co-author and ultimately the reader what, you know, what mistakes were made early on and uh, how the strategy had to change so that Bulger would, you know, eventually be captured. Now, we write about Bulger actually uh, in San Diego um, the day that The Departed is premiering all across the country. And Bulger loved his own mythology. So, yeah, it was nominally, with Jack Nicholson, it was nominally loosely based loosely on Loosely based, Bulger. of course. Yeah. But in Bulger's mind, it was, you know, it was him that he was watching on the screen. So here he is watching a fictitious uh, uh, portrayal of himself and really enjoying it. And he's spotted by a, uh, a San Diego sheriff's deputy who ha just happened to grow up in the Boston area and knew the Bulger case down pat and recognized this man for who he was. And, and that was James Whitey Bulger. But Bulger, even in his uh, you know, uh, older age, was able to give the sheriff's deputy the slip. And when the sheriff's deputy reached out to the FBI for assistance, the FBI uh, you know, wasn't much of a help at all. In fact... Um, you know, the FBI office in Los Angeles, where all the West Coast uh, tips were being fielded, um, you know, didn't even know who Whitey Bulger was, at least the person on on the phone with the sheriff's deputy. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't corruption that kept FBI uh, Whitey Bulger on the run for so long. It was really incompetence and uh, uh, ineptness, um, again, in the early phases of the manhunt uh, of White, for Whitey Bulger. But that all changed on a dime in the mid-2000s. And I can't say enough about the fugitive hunters that really tracked Bulger and Catherine Dr Gregg down and did it very peacefully so that nobody would, uh, would ultimately get hurt. So it's about Christmas of 1994. He gets the tip off that the indictment, the dragnet's coming out, the most wanted thing. There's a joint task force of DEA, the Boston police, the Massachusetts State Police. I guess it's nominally about Bulger's illegal gambling operations, but you're getting information from other affiliates that there was a lot worse involved. So he flees with his girlfriend, Catherine Gregg. And this is where Catherine Gregg comes in because it's so haunting to me how th the breakthrough that you guys explained was that they get their mitts on... You know, the, the feds get their mitts on these photos of plastic surgery that she had in the early 80s, which were kind of pristine photos of a person who otherwise was not spotted anywhere. So then you can get that out to plastic surgeons or publications across the country if this woman has come to you, you know, tip us off because there was no idea where they were. 
Uh, you're absolutely right. And, and, but again, that was a shift in mindset. So for you know, over a decade, the FBI, Massachusetts State Police, U.S. Marshal Service, they're looking for an elderly white gentleman in sunglasses and a baseball cap. Now, Robin, I can walk down the street in Boston today and find five of those guys. Sure. Um, so you can imagine the tips that constantly came into the FBI offices and that ultimately went nowhere. So it took Noreen Gleason, uh, the assistant um, uh, agent in charge of the Boston office to, again, change the mindset of the investigation. And she said to her group, look, we've spent so much time chasing him and got nowhere. Let's go after her, meaning Catherine Gregg. But they well, had stop, stop, for, stop for a minute, Casey. I got to unpack the Catherine Gregg thing because I don't understand what it is with these mob uh, these, these mob girlfriends in Boston specifically, many of them have dealt with lives of abuse or neglect. If you think about the, the stepdaughter, the common-law stepdaughter that he molested or you know Steve Fleming molested or the relationship with the common-law wife and that they, I, I don't know, they come to expect that they're going to get protection from a person like this because I certainly, if I'm Catherine Gregg, you're on nobody's list and suddenly you want to go off with an elderly, cantankerous person across the country and just be looking back behind your shoulder every minute because she was in love with him robin and you know she wasn't bulger's first choice bulger had a longtime girlfriend named uh, Teresa stanley who he actually had taken uh on the run with him for a couple of months uh, uh early on in the investigation but Teresa stanley you know did not want to live the life of a fugitive because she had kids and grandkids and wanted to come back home um where Catherine gregg you know the girlfriend that did not have kids did not have you know uh you know a, a large family that she either depended on or that depended on her and she wanted to be number one in Bulger's life and this was the opportunity for her to do that. But number one is a hermit even when you say Catherine Gregg realized that she was she was a distant second choice to this to this number one mall, right? Why would you, again, I'm trying to occupy her mind and other people tried to occupy her mind and I'm connecting it with I think when they caught him finally, in the uh, small apartment building in Santa Monica, and when he did the interview on 60 Minutes, and when he wrote people, he was very liberal in his short time in prison about responding to people who would write him, is that he, she was the sweetest person in the world. She was the love of his life. Just make sure you let her go. She didn't do nothing. I just remember it in, in his voice. Right. But you have to be, you have to be a kind of a, a an abused psyche to be willing to make that trade-off. Like, I'm just going to go and shelter with you in a small apartment and be terrified for at least 16 years until death do us part. And she could have she could have left him at any any given time, especially when they got to Santa Monica, where he was now dependent on her to go out shopping for groceries, to do you know pay all the bills. You know she had a lot of time on her hands where she could have walked into the FBI office and said, you know I am uh, in in fear of my life, and uh, you know I, I've been uh, uh, basically held hostage by uh, one of your top fugitives. She could have done that. She never did. Because because she was in love with him. But what the FBI wanted the public to uh, believe was that she was in fear for her life. And that's when, you know, when they got the um, uh, plastic surgery photographs of Catherine Gregg, who, uh, which again, broke the case wide open because before that, Robin, there were only um, uh, surveillance pictures of Catherine yeah, Gregg. Yeah, grainy, grainy, grainy surveillance ones. photos. Yeah, you, you couldn't make anything woman out. Was. But these are like right in your face. You see the blue in her eyes. You see the contours of her face. You could age her with, with computer imaging technology. That's right. And, and they, you know, it, this is the, for the first time in history, the FBI created its own PSA. Instead of feeding uh, the show America's Most Wanted information, they decided to create their own commercial using those photographs of Catherine Gregg and plastering them on television sets uh, in markets uh, where Whitey Bulger sightings had happened. And it's interesting that, you know, so they, uh, Whitey Bulger had been s spotted in Grand Isle, Louisiana with Catherine. So they, they flooded the, you know, the southern uh, market with these PSAs. Uh, they also uh, uh, aired the PSA in San Francisco because of Bulger's connection to Alcatraz. The one market that they did not air the, these commercials in was Los Angeles because it was too expensive. But they were, they were buying time on, um, during programs like The Ellen Show or Dr. Phil, programs where women were, they knew where women were watching. 
Did I see that he was on America's Most Wanted how many times? 16 times? 16 first times. In, first in 1995, and then the, for the last time in October of 2010, just months before he was napped. That's right. And, and, and again, it shows you, you know, that that particular program did not work in this case. It took the why FBI. Did he, you know, I tried to glean from your book, why did he pick Santa Monica? It's almost flirting with the danger of it, because he did admit to the feds after he was nabbed that he, he wasn't as reclusive as he could have been. He was traveling quite a bit with Catherine, that somebody had seen him on the Santa Monica Pier and elsewhere in in the L.A. area. Um, you, you mentioned in the book the off-duty Boston police officer who happened to be in San Diego who saw him at the movie theater, like thought it was a hallucination. I mean, if you're going to go on the lam, go on the lam. But these guys would go out and feed cats, which led to the downfall, maybe the hubris or this idea right. that they weren't going to come after an old man at this point. You know, uh, Bulger, Whitey and Catherine's apartment in Santa Monica was 0.8 miles from the Santa Monica police station. So he was hiding in plain sight during all that time. And if you've ever been to Santa Monica, you know that there's a surveillance camera just about on every street corner, especially, you know, in the neighborhoods that, that they lived and that they walked around. But Bulger was still a bit of a prisoner in his own lair, if you will. And, you know, I liken him to uh, Osama bin Laden in this way. You know, bin Laden was number one on the FBI's most wanted list. Bulger was number two. And both of them were free, but both of them were living in, you know, these virtual prisons. Uh, bin Laden in uh, Pakistan, Bulger in Santa Monica, where, you know, his travel was restricted to a degree. Yes, he did uh, travel a bit. And, you know, we, we find out and we break news in the book that that he was traveling, driving all the way to Detroit, Michigan to call his family. And that he did that because he didn't want uh, the FBI to think he was in Southern California. He wanted them to think that he was uh, hiding out in Canada. So again, Bulger was very, very, very savvy. But here he is trapped basically in his apartment. He'd go out onto his balcony with a pair of binoculars, staring down at the street, wondering if you know, the, his would-be assassin from his old days in South Boston was going to be walking down the street or if a SWAT or FBI team were going to be coming after him. So he was always looking over his shoulders uh, to a degree, which is why he uh, had stashed so many weapons and so much money in that little two-bedroom apartment. Now, my co-author, Dave Wedge, and I are the only authors that have ever had entrance into that apartment in Santa Monica, and it's such a tight confined space. Yeah, I, I, wa I want to get into that. So the crazy thing that happens among a million crazy things, I didn't even mention that, that Whitey Bulger managed to get his hands on a lottery ticket in Boston in 1991. I mean, that's in the book with a whole other, other chunky things. I mean, it was a real page turner for me. Mm -hmm. But that the former Miss Iceland who lived near them in Santa Monica uh, <laughs> recognized Bulger and then tipped off the feds and then they made their move and they're terrified that it's going to be like John Dillinger is going to go out with guns a-blazing. That's right. Tell me what went down. Well, what went down was, you know, I mentioned the, the PSA that went out uh, all over the United States, but because it was such a new approach uh, from the FBI, CNN uh, and the BBC covered it as a news story. So they were showing the PSA all over the world and here is this uh, middle-aged woman in Iceland who recognized is her friend, Carol Gasco, which in reality was Catherine Gregg, and then spots um, Carol's, uh, you know, angry, racist husband, Charlie Gasco, who is really Whitey Bulger. So she immediately picks up her phone and dials the tip line and gets uh, the overnight uh, recording service in the FBI office in Boston. And they're fielding, um, uh, you know, young agents are fielding tips during this time because they figured that they would get a lot of tips over a 24 to 48 hour sure. period. But they're, they're younger agents, you know, at midnight, two o'clock in the morning, getting these tips. And she, uh, she called three times, once uh, to Boston and didn't feel comfortable talking to the person that she got on the phone. She sent an email to the Boston office and then called the FBI office in Washington, D.C. So the next day when one of the manhunters, a U.S. marshal that was brought onto the team named Neil Sullivan, gets into the office, he's fielding a boatload of different tips. And they all are kind of similar because, you know, they all basically are, well, I spotted this guy. 
guy in a shopping mall in Biloxi, Mississippi, or something of that nature. Well, her tip was different because she gave the aliases, she gave the address, and it was easy for Sullivan to put these names in um, you know, the law enforcement database that they had at the time to see if they had social security numbers or any identification that would uh, speak to the people that were living inside apartment 303 at uh, Princess Eugenie Apartments. The Princess Eugenie Apartments in Santa Monica, totally nondescript. You, you know, these guys were the, what were they, the Bascos? I forget the name. But agents found more than $800,000 in cash in the walls, 30 guns of various sizes, various fake IDs. I want to know just quickly what it felt like to, to sneak into that apartment, to feel it. Well, oh, it was it was it was eerie. And, uh, you know, the, uh, Bulger was long gone, but but his ghost was still there, you know, walking around the living room where, you know, he was looking outside and go, getting onto the balcony where he was staring down at, uh, you know, uh, assassins and law enforcement real and imagined going into his bedroom. And now Catherine and Whitey did not share a bedroom. She had her own separate bedroom because Whitey Bulger would wake up screaming at night because of those LSD experiments that he had participated in in the 1960s. So you've got a very confined space. Looking at the walls where Bulger had cut out large pieces of uh, sheetrock where he stuffed all, you know, a, a, a lot of his guns where he stuffed $800,000, uh, you know, in cash uh, ready for his escape at any time. One of the things I told you that I was laughing, I, I, I actually screen grabbed it and posted it on Twitter, that the FBI came in and found these bottles of like 40, you know, 40 ounce beer things with socks around them. And they thought for a minute that he was planning to blow up the place. But he had explain you know this is talk about the lion in winter then no i bought these tube socks that might they're too tight on my calves so i had to stretch them yes. i mean that's how anticlimactic it is but in closing this is this is where it gets just dead serious by the time he's 89 years old and against the counsel of of of, of many people inside the system he was transferred to the fed in oklahoma city and was bludgeoned to death in october of 2018 his his eyes were pretty much gouged out he was almost an invalid in a wheelchair and maybe someone he had recognized that he was a quote unquote rat and wanted to earn you know, his points behind bars at having killed a top echelon informant? Yeah, well, we, you know, we corresponded with the prime suspect or, or uh, uh, the man accused in Bulger's murder, who is still in solitary confinement at the Hazleton Penitentiary in West Virginia, where Bulger was killed. And it's the worst penitentiary in the entire country, uh, you know, in terms of inmate on inmate crime. Now, when Bulger was beaten to death with a, a lock in a sock, you know, he was, he was bludgeoned so bad Sadly, that inmates uh, who saw his body believed that his eyes had been gouged out. That was a rumor that spread like wildfire after Bulger was killed. It turns out that's not the truth at all, but Bulger's eyes were so badly beaten, they were swollen shut, and you could not see his eyes. So we deconstruct a bit of that mythology in the book because we can take the reader right into the cell when Bulger is, is getting killed. And we follow Bulger from the day that he's convicted in Boston to three different prisons that uh, he was incarcerated in. They went to Tucson, Arizona first, where there is a, uh, an attempt on his life. Bulger was actually stabbed in the skull by another inmate, and we chronicle that in detail in the book. And he's telling friends of his afterwards, you know, when I get it, I hope they give it to me quick because I gave it quick. In closing, it was, a, it was the brother of the woman, Deborah Davis, who was reportedly killed by Bulger in 1981 when he learned of this hit in the prison system, just currently stated that Whitey died the way I hope he always was going to die. Uh, I love this book, Casey Sherman. I highly recommend uh, my listeners get their mitts on it. Hunting Whitey, the inside story and the capture and killing of America's most wanted crime boss from one true crime wonk to another. Uh, sir, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Robin. It was a great conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. You can enjoy this show on NPR member station VPM News on the trusty NPR One app. And of course, subscribe early and often and rate us beautifully on Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. And remember, don't park your car too far from Harvard Yard. Don't be a chowderhead. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you soon.